He then paid the big bucks for a $400 Commodore 64 computer a few years later. So I was one of the first digital natives, a term that we use a lot to describe kids that have never really known anything other than the digital world that we live in today. I was writing computer games and playing with spreadsheets and word processors before I got to high school, and I was on the internet uh, before the first web browser was released in 1993. Today, this sort of oh, digital awareness is fairly common, but in the public schools in suburban St. Louis, where I grew up in the 80s and 90s, Many of the teachers thought of computers as something like the latest fad, maybe like Pong or Pet Rocks or Rubik's Cubes. They'd be replaced by the next cultural phenomenon in the next couple of years. So a lot of my education was devoted to learning skills which seemed pretty silly to me at the time and which have proven to be basically useless. Advanced practical arts in high school included learning to touch type on a manual keyboard, and we lost points for any correction we needed to make by putting a little whiteout tape in and typing over the letter that we uh, mistyped. Um, strange technology for anyone that grew up with the delete key. Um, we were also taught to balance a checkbook as if it was an almost moral activity of fiscal responsibility, but it's one I've never had to perform in my adult life with the, uh, the statements get sent to you on the minute. You can see what your uh, statement is. Um, the insistent warnings of my arithmetic teachers that I wouldn't always have a, a calculator in my pocket have been proven to be largely unfounded. <laughs> As a child, I suspected some of this, but I couldn't be completely sure. The warnings of those in authority teaching practices from an age that was quickly passing away could sound scary. And I think this is somewhat like where the apostles are at the start of the passage looking, that we're looking at today. They've just healed a crippled beggar in the name of Jesus, and in return, yeah, okay. um, yeah so the apostles have just healed a crippled beggar in the name of Jesus, and in return, they've been warned by authority figures in their community not to speak any more in the name of Jesus in Jesus' name. The apostles can sense that the old world is passing away, but those in power are still clinging to it. It's easy to think of the apostles as stained glass window saints, but they were probably not much older than many of the teenagers and college kids in our church. And they'd spent the last few years following around a guy who was about 10 years younger than I am. They decided in a moment of youthful exuberance to abandon the family business and their basic support systems for a man who some people thought might be leading a revolution against Rome, the most powerful nation the world had seen to that point. And when things got really tense in the capital of their little violent, backward Middle Eastern country, their own religious leaders had the Western rulers detain and execute him for what we would probably call a terrorist today, for being that. And now the same local rulers who executed Jesus as a terrorist are beginning to threaten the apostles. And so now these, this group of Middle Eastern kids in a Western-occupied country have to decide what to do next. They pray together, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and their peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and their rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. 
they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The Apostles' Prayer at the beginning of Christianity sets forth three major ideas that I'd like us to look at today. First, God is in control. Second, God cannot be opposed. And third, God's mission in the Christian age is to heal. So first, God is in control. The apostles acknowledge that God made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The book of Genesis doesn't tell us exactly how God made the world, but it does tell us that God made it all. Before Shakespeare, or even Shakespeare's great-great-grandmother ever spoke a word, before even the English language was ever spoken, before the Roman Empire was conceived in the greatest political minds, and before the straw that formed the bricks of the pyramids of Egypt was planted, before Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob ever thought to seek a wife, there were humans walking around on the earth. And before these humans were on the earth, before the earth itself was formed, and before the sun began to burn and rotate around the center of gravity of the galaxy, and before even for infinite centuries before the time when Eve reached for the forbidden fruit, God is and was and is to be. And all of that was created, was not only created by him, but continues to have its being in him. He built the world and continues to supply the power that keeps it on. And all the range of things we could imagine are only a subset of what God is. To say that God is in control is somewhat like saying the sun is in control of the motion of a butterfly. It may imagine it moves on its own, but it cannot even conceive the way in which, on a macro scale, its very frame of reference is dictated by forces exponentially larger than itself. And so we are to God. He created the heavens and the earth and everything that is within them. And the follow-up truth to this may be obvious, but it's a good reminder when we're living at the microscale of the butterfly. If we said, if, as we said first, God is in control, then the second principle follows, God's will cannot be opposed. The apostles quote a worship song in their prayer, Psalm 2, Why Do the Nations Rage? And they actually... Uh, quote the Greek Septuagint version rather than the old Hebrew texts, where there's a difference that in Hebrew it says, why do the nations conspire? But they knew the Greek version of this song, and so that's the one they quote in their prayer. And it reminds them and everyone with them that the power is not where it seems to be. The power is not with Rome, nor with the local provincial religious leaders of their occupied country. And it's not even necessarily located with the teeny little group of Jesus followers. It's instead with God, who, as they say, created heaven and earth and everything, the Romans, the Jews, and the Jesus followers. And their prayer is an important realization for Peter and John and those with them. God already knows what they're telling him. He already knows everything they're saying in the prayer. But they need to remind themselves that however scary the threats of the Sanhedrin and even Rome might be, the power is nothing compared to the power of God. And I've said before that sometimes uh, in scripture we get a little fragment of the psalm and maybe they continued singing the rest of the psalm. And later on in the psalms, the lyrics uh, go, the one who is enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. 
saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. It's so ridiculous, it's almost funny that Annas and Caiaphas think they can take on the one God anointed. They're as likely as to succeed as a little group of butterflies deciding to try to turn back the rotation of the earth by beating their wings really fast in a westerly direction. And Chaucer has a really great picture of the disparity between actual reality and earthly priorities in his version of the story of Troilus and Cressida. Mm -hmm. If you know the story, Troilus is this guy in Troy who falls in love with Cressida, another Trojan, and after a long set of events, he's killed in battle with the Greeks. But as he dies, Troilus looks back on Earth, so he's flying up into the heavens, and he looks back on Earth, and he laughs at those at his funeral, for he sees the true reality that is much greater and real than the one that we see and act upon. Chaucer writes, and when he, Troilus, was slain in this manner, his light ghost full blissfully went up into the hollowness of the eighth sphere. And leaving behind every element, he saw there, clear in his ascent, the wandering planets, hearing harmony and sounds full of heavenly melody. And down from there, he spies this little spot of earth that with the sea is embraced and begins to despise this wretched world and hold it vanity compared with the true felicity that is in heaven and ab above. And at the last, down where he was slain, He's, his gaze he cast. And in himself he laughed at the woe of those who wept for his death now past and damned all the work that follows so on blind lust which never can last when we all our heart on heaven should cast. The things that seem pressing, pressing right now, the things that weigh upon your heart or which you deeply desire, or even those things that you know that you need to get done when you get home, the strategic conversations you know you need to have at work this week, all should be considered in light of the reality of our God who created every single thing that we've ever experienced or known or thought of. It's not that what happens later on this week doesn't matter. It's not that our work or relationships are meaningless, far from it. But we need to consider our visible reality in light of the creator who made them all and who will outlast every memory of them. If our plans are in line with our creator's will, this reconsideration of reality should also give us confidence for nothing can defeat God's will. The people who convinced the Romans to crucify Jesus thought they'd won. But as the apostles prayed, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And maybe right now you're thinking of something that you need to do, that you feel God is calling you to do. But you're thinking also, what will my husband say or what will my boss do or even what will my church think of me? We see, though, as we get a better picture, better picture of the true reality, is that since God's will cannot be opposed, we don't have to worry that we're going to end up on the losing side. If we're following God's will, we may suffer and die, but our king has shown us that even suffering and dying is actually a victory. And we already know that as humans, we're going to suffer and die. That part is inevitable whether we obey or not. And a lot of us enjoy habits and diets and lifestyles that hasten the suffering and death much more reliably than obedience to God's commands. But while we move towards death along a, pain, a path that will almost certainly include suffering, we can choose to fearlessly devote our efforts in the meantime to the things that God is calling us to, to a project that cannot be canceled and work in a company that will never go bankrupt. It's sometimes hard for us to determine what God is calling us to, but if you have a clear picture right now, you can have confidence that you don't need to fear anyone or anything 
will be able to stop you from doing it if you can muster the faith to obey. So let's take a moment right now to consider what we plan to do next. What are we planning or conspiring with others to do this week? What's on your calendar? And let's silently ask God if there's anything that he wants us to add to it or uh, remove from it. Take a few minutes to do that. So maybe some of you couldn't think of anything as you were praying. Um, Maybe the distractions are so great that you really couldn't focus on what God might be saying to you, and you still don't know what is the work of heaven that in Chaucer's word we should uh, cast all our heart upon. Well, what are we as Christians called to do? If you can't discern God's specific will at the moment, you can learn to, uh, to his general will for all Christians. And the disciples in the passage we read today are still trying to figure this out. And they think back to what Jesus did. What big things did Jesus do that made him different? It wasn't political power plays. He seemed to avoid those. The, the, the most remarkable thing that Jesus did, the thing that seems to have brought lots of people to him, was to heal people. Peter and John just healed a crippled beggar. And Dick told us last week that what that Luke calls, that's the word that uh, Luke uses for this, is saving the beggar. The beginning of salvation seems to be supernaturally making whole that which Satan and the curse of Eden has broken. This is the work of the gospel, to go out and cancel the curse of Eden with the supernatural power of God's redemption. The apostles pray, stretch out your hand and heal. Perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And we're told that the place they were in was shaken after this prayer. And now you and I are here in the West, in Rome, far from the sweaty heat of a little stone room in the Middle East, surrounded by folks in beards and head coverings and robes. And what should we do in response to this message? What should the aqueduct builders, the lyceum teachers, the managers of cities in Italy have done in response to the message of Jesus in the first century? I think the message to them and to us is similar to that uh, to the one to the, the uh, to given to those hanging out in the temple. First, God is in control. Second, God cannot be opposed. And third, God's mission in the Christian age is to heal. For the apostles, and perhaps for some of us today, the first mission is literally to heal. God gave them the ability to heal the crippled beggar, and later those who came to them, hoping that Peter's shadow would fall on them. Jesus' victory on the cross meant that the curse of Eden, which includes sickness, is being rolled back. It's not just physical sickness, though. In the fourth chapter of the book of Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts as well, Jesus declared his mission at the beginning of his ministry by quoting Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me, he said, because he has anointed me, made me his anointed one that cannot be um, opposed. To proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As Jesus' followers, as his employees, our goals should flow from his own. We should proclaim the good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners and sight for the blind. We should work to set the oppressed free. When the early Christians did this, their worlds changed. They began to live together in community, and in the next few passages we'll read, we'll see that their entire lifestyles were were radically upended by this. 
In the 1980s, when the analog world was passing away to be replaced with the digital, um, it was a kind of metaphorical microcosm of the period we now live in in the long timeline of human history. There was a time for wide-out eraser tape to cover our mistakes. There was a time when knowledge required long rituals of long division and multiplication. But now we have the delete key and smartphones in our pocket. And the reality is changing. And when the apostles realized this, their lifestyles changed too. And as I said, they began sharing everything in a voluntarily communistic economy. And we're told that the power at work within them frightened and attracted outsiders who were too afraid to join them but wanted to be near enough to them that they could benefit from the healing authority that the apostles had. And we're gathered here today in a community that is connected over many generations and through many religious movements to that group of Middle Eastern kids gathered on Solomon's porch in the last years of Herod's temple. Are we ready for that sort of transformation? I don't know that we can be. But we can do what the apostles did and ask God to stretch out his hand and heal us and give us boldness. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Let's take a few minutes, and maybe if a couple of people could pray that God would do that here today. <laughs>